start to design what that life is going to be for you, what, you know, your career, your personal stuff, uh, how you balance all of those things, what you want uh, out of life, you know, what your objectives are out of life, and uh, which I think is good. And I think it's good to have a clear point of view about where you want to go, but then also letting go of the tiller a little bit and allowing, being open to experiences, being open to trying new things. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another edition of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I am very excited to have my friend Patrick Goddard, president of Brightline Trains, here with us today. Patrick, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's a real pleasure to be here, Steve. Well, Patrick, let's jump in here like we always do. What was your first job in hospitality? How did you get started in this beautiful industry? Well, I grew up in Ireland and I had my, on my mother's side of the family, I had a, a butcher, a fishmonger, a uh, pub owner, a baker. I didn't have a candlestick maker, but, you know, my, my, my mom had, you know, about a dozen siblings and uh, many of them were involved in some aspect of food production, baking, you know, our serving pints. Uh, mm -hmm. So around that. Uh, her family is from Wexford, although I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I spent my summers in Wexford and started working in my uncle Frank's fish factory. Uh, that wow. was my first, that was my sort of first experience of it. When you live in Europe, you get the opportunity. It's pretty common for teenagers to work their summers abroad. So I, you know, go, there's all sorts of journals and magazines where you could uh, apply for these kinds of uh, summer internships or summer jobs. And I went to France and worked in an area, the cognac region, actually on a restaurant, a riverside restaurant that had cruises, a campsite, rental homes, a restaurant, a bar. And I spent a few summers doing that. And that's really where I fell in love with food and beverage to begin with. Uh, the French love their food and wine. And uh, I got to learn a lot about it. I had an amazing mentor, a guy called Patrick Gregoire. Uh, so we shared the same initials. We had that in common. And, uh, you know, he was referred to as Patu. And Patu uh, spent his summers in Biarritz and his winters in St. Moritz. And this guy knew how to do everything from hospital corners to making a Manhattan to preparing his own foie gras. 
And uh, he and I worked together for three years, four summers on and off. And I learned a lot from him and he really, you know, that's how I caught the bug. That's amazing. So how old were you when you started that? Do you remember? 16 was my first summer abroad with, uh, you know, in, in the Charente region. That's nice. So, wait, so four summers, so 16 to 20, you were doing that. And what did your family think about you getting into hospitality since they were doing it already? Was that just kind of like a natural progression or were they trying to get you out of it? Yeah, well, not really. You know, my dad, uh, my mother was a nurse and my father was in, you know, the finance. He was account in, in accounting and he was entrepreneurial. Got it. Um, my two older brothers, one had gotten into applied mathematics. The other one had gotten into finance and accounting. My younger brother was in engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a little bit of an anomaly, but I just felt, you know, when I was under the gun to pick a college, you know, uh, course, the only one that appealed to me and that, and, and, you know, it was kind of funny because the way that the course was described, it was a degree in hospitality management, but you also got this bachelor's in, in strategic management. So I, you know, I was able to slip it under the radar as a, you know, or, or at least obscure enough to my parents that it was still a, a management degree that I could go and do mm -hmm. other things with. So I wasn't completely putting all of my eggs into the hospitality basket. Yeah. Uh, so there was a little bit of like, you know, I don't know that it was that well received that I was going to go into that industry uh, initially. Um, but I think after uh, a couple of years, it grew on them. And uh, uh, I think they were just happy to see me find something that made me happy. That's cool. And so when you were traveling, you know, that's very different. You grew up in Ireland, you go to France, it's two different worlds. What was that like when you first got there? I just thought it was amazing. I mean, not, you can't discount the independence you have um, and the freedom you feel when you first ha have an experience away from home for, you know, three, four or five months at a time. So that was obviously a magical experience, which, you know, I fully enjoyed. And there's a lot of stories around that. So, but, but, you know, and then of course is learning another language. And, you know, when you learn another language or you immerse yourself fully in another country, you, you really rewire your brain and you, you start to think about things differently and you, you have a very, very different perspective on life. Um, and specifically in the context of hospitality, you have a very different perspective on it. Working in France, there's just so, so much respect and admiration for that industry. And for particularly on the food service side, there's so much uh, respect for food, for great ingredients, uh, for quality wines, for the way things are prepared. That's something that has stayed with me my entire life, you know, even to today when I'm, you know, Purchasing, purchasing groceries. Uh, so, so, so I think it definitely shaped my perspective uh, on life in general, but certainly on, on hospitality and, and what hospitality uh, can do for others. Um, you know, I really viewed it as this incredible industry where you got to make people feel at home when they weren't. And, you know, that sensibility stayed with me my whole life and, and, and really I've spent my whole life honing that skill of uh, creating experiences that make people feel good in, in the environments that we create. I love hearing that. And so you, listen, you, you fell in love with it completely, right? Some people just kind of hop into it, don't realize it, but you fell in love with it at a young age. And at 20, you're doing that. Where, when do you start getting into like Hilton? I know you joined Hilton. Was it right after that kind of time? It was, it was at the same time. So I was doing a lot of things. I was always very entrepreneurial. I was always very ambitious. Um, so I would spend my summers in France and, and back home. I was going to college, but I was also working 
at the Conrad Hotel in Dublin, which was part of Hilton. Uh, I was also did. I've got lots of fun stories about you know when in in the in Dublin in particular. There's what's 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 called the gig industry here now in the U.S. We're called Nixers back in Dublin. Nixers, N-I-X-E-R-S. And you could find a Nixer, you know, catering an event and make, you know, 50 bucks to do a wedding or, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 15 bucks an hour to do a, an event. And I got to do some really amazing ones. So from kind of the mid nineties until I moved to the States in 2000, I was working at Hilton. I was doing my summers in France and I was doing a lot of these Nixers. And I worked for one very high end catering company uh, throughout that time period. And I got to be the head waiter for the European summit at Dublin castle. I got to be the head waiter at uh, uh, Beckham and Posh Spice's wedding in Luttrellstown castle. I got to do some amazing events in galleries and museums. And, you know, it was just a very fun lifestyle. That was part of, by the way, you know, how I fell in love with it. It wasn't just the the food and beverage side of it. It was just this lifestyle where you got to, I'm extroverted, right? And I'm very open to new experiences and I'm social. This was just the perfect thing for me because I got to, you know, interface with my peers. I got to serve very interesting people. Uh, I met lots of celebrities and politicians and, and public figures um, and that was just right up my alley. I just found it a very gratifying thing to do. It was just a very fun thing to do. It was always exciting. Every day was a little bit different. Uh, there was always a new adventure. And, um, you know, it was just this constant sort of like dopamine reward every time I like walked out the door. Uh, and, and, you know, as a result, you didn't mind the long hours. You didn't mind the brutal shifts. You didn't mind putting in like a two and a half day shift because, yeah. you, you know, it was just it was all fun. And, you know, there was pretty... Uh, you know, the, the, it, it, you know, there was the work aspect of it and there was a the social aspect of it. And there was the, you know, uh, after you'd had a hard day or a hard night or a hard week, you know, there was, there was, a, the, the, you know, you let some steam off with your, your peers as well. You had a good time with them. Um, and, you know, being in the hospitality industry, again, you got access to things that most people didn't get access to, whether those were, you know, access to great clubs or, you know, you know, free meals and restaurants or whatever those things were, um, just the whole lifestyle I, I found uh, to be a very gratifying, fulfilling thing. So when you're at Hilton, cause, you know, you touch on a lot of things that I think it's the, call, it's the addiction of hospitality. I, I got addicted to it because you get all those dopamine hits. Like you said, I didn't think about it that way, but that's what it is. But when you're at Hilton, what is your progression there? Is it just kind of like in hourly roles or your supervisory yeah. roles? Like, yeah. where, where did you get to while you were so in Ireland? At that, at that Hilton, I was working. I started off in banquets and then I, you know, actually working in a fine dining restaurant back in those days was really a status thing. And I remember sitting in the cafeteria of, of that Conrad uh, as a banquet server, which was kind of, uh, you know, middle of the totem pole. And then when the guys from the Alexandra, the the formal dining room would walk in in their tuxedos and their, you know, tails and the whole thing, I was like, man, one, one day I'm going to be like one of those guys. And so I, I, may, I managed to progress my way through the different restaurants um, and became like a commie waiter uh, in the Alex and moved my way up to a full waiter over the course of about 18 months. And I got to then, that also opened up more opportunities in the Nixer front. So I got to do, I, you know, in, in addition to those big events that I was head waiter for, I did the Royal Jockey Club at Epsom at the races. I got to do some amazing things. So as I was doing my thing at Hilton, it was opening up more doors for me outside of Hilton. Um, I did spend a couple of summers, like, you know, 
because I was going to hotel school at the same time. So I spent a couple of, a couple of uh, I did some internships with them uh, through the course of my time there where they would have me like as an overnight manager or as a, you know, concierge or receptionist. So I kind of got some exposure to the front of house uh, as well as the food and beverage piece. Um, and then I took a, I took a quick, uh, I, my first experience at the U S was in 97. So this is all, so Hilton was 96 to 2000. I'm doing all of these summers in France. Um, one summer I went to Wildwood, New Jersey, uh, with about like 15 of my friends. Um, again, a really fun story. I mean, we literally like landed in Columbia university, got handed our visas and then had to figure out where we were going. And, um, we ended up getting the bus out. You, we, like a lot of people got the bus to Montauk uh, mm-hmm. and a bunch of people went to Nantucket and then yeah. a bunch of people went to, we went to Wildwood. Wildwood just sounded more fun. I don't know. Why. <laughs> uh, so we ended up renting a house there with a bunch of friends. And I, I remember working at a restaurant called Kokomo's. I was a prep chef in the morning. I was a waiter in the evening. Um, but that was a fun summer. That was my first experience of the U.S. And then when I moved back, I graduated from college. And sort of towards, as I was getting ready to graduate, I had I had started working as a an assistant front office manager at uh, uh, there's a ch- small hotel chain called Jury the Jury's Doyle Hotel Group in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Sorry, in Ireland, and uh, they had an inn in the Keys, what what are called the Keys, along the River Liffey in Dublin on the north side, in in what was then just becoming the new financial district, and I I remember. It was a very, very busy hotel right in the middle of the financial district, a couple of blocks away from uh, the point of what was called then the Point uh, Depot. I think it's now called the O2 Arena. That's it, it's it was the main concert venue really in the country. Uh, so it was the kind of place where, you, you know, you got up in the morning and you dealt with breakfast and then everybody ran out the door and then you were turning rooms and then you got crushed at lunchtime. We had a lunch buffet. We'd get crushed at lunchtime. You'd get through lunch, you'd clean up after lunch, and then people, you know, you're, you're dealing with the people whose rooms weren't ready yet. Um, so I was at back at the front desk dealing with that. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I was upstairs trying to finish rooms. Uh, like I remember running around trying to finish rooms and like, I, you know, did I leave my radio like five rooms ago or, you know, eight <laughs> rooms ago or where's my jacket, right? And then coming down and dealing with angry guests and you sort of get through that. And then the happy hour rush would start. Then the pre-concert rush would start. And then it would quieten down and you'd kind of clean up the bar. And then the post-concert rush, you'd get hit again. <laughs> it was just one of those crazy hotels where, where it just never, it was like nonstop. The place was just on fire. But it was a very, very, very hard job. We were always understaffed, um, long hours. And, you know, I had I had already experienced some time in France and, and, and had a summer in the U.S. And I'm like, you know, this is... I remember one morning, it was about five o'clock in the morning. I'm on my way into work. It's dark. It's rainy. It's Ireland. You know, the rain is coming in sideways. I'm at the, on the second second floor of a, of a, of a bus and uh, still smells of like, you know, puke from the night before. And oh, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm like thinking to myself, like, this, this is, this just like, this can't be it. I gotta, I gotta find something else to do. And, uh, I applied for probably like, so I spoke uh, English, French, and a little bit of Spanish. And I'm like, I'm basically going to apply to jobs all over the world, wherever I can speak the language, wherever I can speak the language and wherever I can, you know, relatively easily obtain a visa. And I probably applied to like a hundred different positions. 
Now, this uh, is like early. This is like internet. Yeah, this is early yeah. internet time, right? So how are you applying yeah. for these jobs? This is not like an easy way to do now where you can just apply online. Yeah, this is like sending cover letters and resumes, right? And then following up with a phone call, right? Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, I got like lots of people ignored me, got a few letters back, like TBNTs back. And I ended up essentially getting an interview for two positions in the U.S., one in D.C., uh, actually, both of them were in D.C. One was one was with Lowe's Hotels in D.C. and the other one was uh, that Jury's Fitzpatrick group had a Fitzpatrick's had a hotel in in uh, sorry Jury's Doyle's, Doyle's group had a competitor called Fitzpatrick's in Ireland. Fitzpatrick's happened to have a hotel in D.C. So I ended up interviewing for both of them, and uh, you know my opportunity with Fitzpatrick's I was offered the job, but it would have been you know I would have been stuck at that hotel forever potentially. Lowe's obviously had a bigger footprint. So I ended up going to work at Lowe's L'Enfant Plaza in DC and uh, as a, you know, generalist uh, on a J-1 visa. And I was only there for about six months when the GM of that hotel got asked to open the Hard Rock Hotel in Orlando. And I, he ended up taking me with him. Uh, so I went with him, which, you know, in hindsight was pretty amazing, like that he did that for me. Yeah, it's a J-1 coming down to open a new hotel in Orlando and you didn't really have a specific role that you were in. I had only been there for six months. And in the six months that I'd been there, I'd been like a banquet manager and they like put me at the front desk for like a couple of months. Uh, so it was pretty amazing. And it was me and four or five others that got invited down to open the hard rock. And that was like in 2001 and came down and opened the hard rock. As a guest, I was the assistant guest services manager. Then I became the guest services manager. So I was overseeing, you know, front desk, bell door, valet, concierge. And then like, uh, you know, I had recreation for a little bit. And then I went and helped them to open Royal Pacific next door. And then I had an opportunity. I, like I kind of had the guest services thing on, a, on you know, I kind of felt like I had that. Uh, I had all my experience up to that point had been food and beverage. Uh, I did not have housekeeping. Uh, so I really wanted to do housekeeping. So I remember speaking to us. So you and I, you know, have spent time at Lowe's. So Jenny Lucas, who, you know, is mm -hmm. the, now vice know, president. Now she's vice president, I think, of operations for Lowe's Hotels. Yeah. So she's like a rock star. Um, and like, I love Jen. And uh, between her and Lou Carrier, and I don't know if you remember Chef Evan Prococo, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, Evan and Jen, Jen picked me up you know, directly from the potato boat when I landed in D.C., the first time in D.C. And then we all, you know, Evan and I went down to open a hard rock. Jen, obviously, Jen went to corporate. But I went to Jenny and I'm like, Jenny, like, I want to learn housekeeping. Who's the best housekeeper in the company? And the best housekeeper in the company at that time was Laura Lopez, uh, who's now at the Four Seasons in Miami. And they had an opening for assistant director of housekeeping uh, at Lowe's Miami Beach, which I applied for and got. And I went down there and uh, did that for, I only really did it for, I don't even I know if I did a full year uh, before myself and Nikolai Hatza went off to open Aquilina for Rosewood. And we can talk about, you know, why I didn't last yeah. long at Lowe's Miami Beach, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, a, there, there, there's something about, and we can talk about it some more, but, you, you know, when you understand what your own values are, and as you get to understand what those are over time, it becomes more and more important that you're working for people who align with those values. And I just didn't find that I was in the right spot uh, at Lowe's Miami Beach, you know, but I did, there was a lot of people that I loved working with there. Right. You know, you know, my, my good friend, Jamie Lemon and, 
Nikolai and like so many like rock star people have worked in that hotel uh, that I'm friends with, you know, 20 years later. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of alumni from that hotel that have gone to do big things. Yeah. And, you know, the two of us sitting here, but your name, I missed you when I became a manager. You already left, but people still knew you. Right. So you make an impact and you can tell those people in hospitality who leaves that impact. Who are they still talking about years later? Yeah. Like you can still walk in there today and people still know. Yeah. 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 Right. So it's interesting. But anyhow, you continue on. So it wasn't a good fit for you. You're in housekeeping, yeah. but then you yeah. make an interesting jump to like, you know, the Rosewood yeah. Hotels is a, is a big time jump from where you were doing. It, it was. That come on your radar? It was a cool opportunity. So Nikolai. So what had happened was Nikolai had worked for a guy called David Curland, who's like another hospitality legend who ran the Grand Bay in Coconut Grove at, in its heyday and yep. ran the El San Juan of Puerto Rico. And they had worked together at the El San Juan of Puerto Rico when David gets hired by Rosewood to open Aquilina as the managing director, hires Nikolai as the hotel manager and uh, Nikolai hires me as director of rooms. And uh, so I was overseeing you know, front of house, back of house, housekeeping. I bring Laura Lopez with me. And we spent two years in pre-opening and we were a few months away from opening when the developer, Jules Trump, decides to break up with Rosewood. Uh, so at that exact moment in time, so, it, you know, it was one of these openings that, you know, got prolonged unexpectedly due to construction problems and so on. So, you know, we were constantly trying to justify our existence as it was. Um but look, I think we did it. We did some amazing work as it relates to laying out that hotel, designing that hotel, setting up the functionality, setting up the systems, putting the right team in place, all the things that you would do on, a, on an opening in an opening scenario, um, which I had a lot of experience doing based on Hard Rock and my experience at Hard Rock and Royal Pacific. I actually learned that I really enjoyed opening hotels, by the way, which sort of led me led me to my next adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I start running. So, so they actually, Rose was sent me out to Keneal Bay because they, they needed an interim GM. Uh, so I went out to Keneal Bay in St. John, which unfortunately is no longer there. It got lost in a hurricane, I think back in, oh, I don't know when it was, 10 or 12 or something like that. Anyway, Nikolai and, and actually ended up taking over. So I was offered to stay. When Rosewood left, I was offered to stay at Keneal or I could go to the Carlisle in New York or they, they offered me a development job out of, out of uh, Texas where their headquarters were at the time. But as all of that was going on, I got offered an opportunity to start up a management company with a couple of guys. That's where I had this question. So I'm going to, I want to go back one step. So when you're at Rosewood, because it seems like you jumped pretty fast, you left Lowe's and housekeeping, you go to Rosewood and all of a sudden, like within those two years, you pretty much are a GM and they're offering you like corporate roles and pretty much whatever you want to do. Yeah. How do you think that happened? Was it just because there was a young company and they they wanted more help or was it you were just standing out and you were just jumping and making a name for yourself that time? Because that's a pretty interesting yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know how to answer that other than to say, you know, I don't you think if somebody was listening to you, you're mentoring them, they're coming up, you're like, man, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in this hotel. I'm not really a great fit. All yeah. of a sudden, you jump into another hotel where you take off. Was there something like a sign, or was it just something yeah. you knew in your gut and luck? Look, I think I think that throughout my life, I've always had a vision for where I wanted to go. Um, and by the way, I've frequently been wrong, but it's 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 sort of like this is where I want to go. I'm pretty focused on that, 
but at the same time, you need to be able to like let go of the tiller, as they say, right? You need to sort of like see where things take you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I kind of, t- I believe that, you know, I, I definitely had a different perspective from others to start with. And I think that that allowed me to take a much more entrepreneurial approach than some of my peers in terms of how to stand up the business and how to run the business. And I think that people did recognize that. I think people did recognize that I thought about things differently. Um, and I, you know, it was clear to me that people recognized the effort that I was making, not just to sort of do what was expected of me in the role that I was in, but I was always reaching beyond that. And I was always like asking questions and curious about why we were doing things a certain way. And I don't know whether I just have this innate sort of like, I'm, I am, I am, I just have a curiosity about things. So I ask a lot of questions and I think that those questions have gotten me into some interesting places. And, um, you know, I, I definitely think my approach with Rosewood, you know, when they saw, I think they got to see what I could do when I went to Keneal because I was on my own there. And, uh, I was able to make like a pretty significant impact in a short amount of time and very, under very difficult circumstances. And uh, I think they saw that. And then, um, you know, they were like, we like we want to bring this guy up to the Carlisle or like, let's put him into development. And at the same time, Jules Trump meets with me and he's like, uh, we're, we're, you know, it's kind of like, I actually have never really talked about this. And I'm thinking back now, it's kind of wild. So Jules Trump was prepared to offer me to stay and run Aqualina Wow. Uh, uh, so Jules wanted me to stay at Aquilina. I, you know, Rosewood folks wanted me to stick around, uh, but then I had this other opportunity to go and start this other business with these other guys. Yes. Um, anyway, so I think I think it's just uh, like part of it's dumb luck, part of it's hard work, part of it is, is was the curiosity uh, that I had and that I think people saw in me, um, like an energy and an optimism uh, that I've like you know always had about whatever it is that I'm doing. I love it. And let's talk about that segue into curiosity. So then you get curious about starting your own, right? I love this transition because not many people can make this yeah. where they work for a company and then want to create their own, right? right. So yeah, how so, did that happen for you? So it's actually a cleaning company that I'd hired at Aqualina um, who I, I think I put through so much pain to get the business <laughs> yeah. uh, that they, they, they were planning to start. They were ex-hotel guys and they wanted to start a, a, a hotel management company and great guys, you know, super nice guys, um, you know, in hindsight, a bit misguided about like what it was going to take. Um, and what they did initially was they had gotten hired. They'd set up this company, which will remain nameless and I'm not going to, you know, sort of Don't go there. Right now. Um, but they put me at the Savoy hotel, which was, uh, this really weird scenario where it was in bankruptcy and I, I was, they, I was essentially, I essentially needed to function as a receiver. So like my job was like, don't lose money, but don't make too much money. Right. That was sort of my deal. It was like, just figure out how to break even on this thing. So it was like, okay, we're hiring you as our corporate director of operations for the company. We've got a pipeline of six hotels that we're signing. The first one that's actually operating is the Savoy. The others are pre-opening deals. You're going to be based at the Savoy. You're going to run the Savoy. Cause like, that's how they were going to pay my salary basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and while you're there, you're going to set up all of our, our standards and you're going to, you know, help us stand this company up. So I'm like, okay, this is like, this sounds really exciting. This sounds fun. And, um, I kind of, and again, I was single at the time, you know, it was a pretty decent financial package. It was definitely an upgrade. 
I just liked the idea of having that freedom. And I, and I didn't see, I saw a lot of opportunity with that and I did not see as much opportunity going to run another hotel. And, and what I learned about myself is that I, I just, I am not the kind of like, you know, I, I, I am allergic to routine. And I am not very good with, you know, waking up every day and making sure the coffee is coffee is hot and like, you know, doing the hundred like following checklists and, you know, that, that I am uh, not really wired that way. Um, I need uh, creative expression. I need to develop projects. I need to be meeting people and doing things. And, and um, I just need more sort of action, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that was just more appealing to me than like going to the, GM, you know, going going to be GM of the Carlisle in New York and like fighting with the residents who've been living there for a hundred years about, you know, the scent in the lobby. Right. So anyway, so I I go down this path and, you know, long story short, um, and this kind of keeps on happening to me, the management company gets fired, I get hired. But the way that I did that was the client at the Savoy, I basically told him, he's like, look, this is going to be a long road for us. We really don't need a management company. I don't know why I'm paying them 3%, you know, when I got you. And by the way, that happened to me a hundred times later as, as, as the owner of a management company, you know, where the management company gets fired and the GM gets hired and whatever else. But anyway, so, so that happens. I stick around, but I said to them, you know, I'm okay, but like, you got to understand this is not a very fulfilling thing for me. So I'm going to do other things. So you're going to pay me. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to meet your, you know, criteria um, from a, financials uh, and a performance perspective and there's some projects that we need to do and so on and so forth uh, on the property but I'm going to be doing other things um, and they said okay so I negotiated like a higher salary for myself and you know essentially ended up with Savoy as my like you know, like new corporate HQ and and the freedom to go off and do some other things so you know again call it luck call it what you want but that actually gave me the ability to have this sort of stable foundation and to go off and look for other opportunities. That's awesome. Cause a lot of people would have been like, all right, I'm getting back into something stable. You were like, I'm going the other way. I'm going to maximize this opportunity here. And is that when you started creating your own company was using Savoy yeah. as like the first client? Exactly. So I set up my LLC ocean blue hospitality and I signed up to Savoy and then I think my next client was the Clevelander who were doing a $60 million rehab. And then I got signed up by the Grand Beach Hotel. And then I got signed up by the Penguin and the President. And then I got signed up by like Ocean Reef, the little one on the beach, not the big one down yeah, the say. <laughs> And then I got signed up by the, the Satai guys at the Raleigh. Um, and anyway, I ended up with about a dozen clients that were using me for some were using me for pre-opening services some were using me just to work with their gms really to mentor them and to help them set up the infrastructure that they needed mm-hmm. uh, to, be able to run their business properly but the real opportunity i found was a lot of these smaller hotels needed sales marketing and revenue management help you had a gm who was wearing 15 hats trying to like you know figure out how to get rooms cleaned and deal with issues at the front desk and deal with financial problems and billing issues and credit card issues and following up on this and following up on, on, a, on guest problems. And like, who's actually watching the revenue generation, right? Who's watching the revenue generation and to what extent? And, and what I realized was there was tons of upside. And, you know, 
a lot of these smaller boutique independent hotels had no idea what they were doing. They didn't understand pricing, yielding, revenue management. OTAs were still a relatively new concept. Uh, this is like sort of the second half of, of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of came in r- r- like right when everybody was tanking, when the economy was down. And my deal was I would participate in year-over-year upside. So I got a very small base fee, but then I participated in year-over-year upside. And um, it was an easy decision for the hotel owners to make. It was an easy decision for the GMs to make. Um, So I was able to sign up a lot of clients pretty quickly. And like the net-net is I made them a lot of money and I made myself a lot of money. Yeah, it's a great deal for everybody. And you bet on yourself because that was like a tough time, 2006, 2011, really 2008, right in the middle. Right. Everything started falling apart. So I had kind of stable consulting gigs that were paying me monthly fees, you know, and I was able to retain most of those for a couple of years, you know, two to three years each at a time. And then I had some of these other like sales marketing revenue management deals. And then I started doing and then I would get like random stuff like I'd be asked to write a feasibility study or I'd be asked to write a, you know, a, a, a pre-opening plan or whatever. Mm-hmm. I did. You know, I kind of get stuff like that where, where, you know, that was kind of my least preferred stuff because it was more academic stuff where I had to sit down and do research and write a paper. Yeah. Put the graphs uh, together and all the data I'm doing right now. And I find yeah. that like, okay, so, I'm so get it not, done for him. Not as fun, but, um, you know, so anyway, so, so that kind of led me to uh, actually I was sitting at the rally and I credit Mark Tamas for this. Who I think you do, you know, Mark Tamas. We've met once. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So sort of I'm sitting with Mark and he's working for this Thai guys at the time at the rally and I'm sitting around and I'm like, you know, this consulting stuff is great, but it's very unreliable. And, you know, one month is great and then two months are terrible and then somebody doesn't pay me. And I would, you know, I got to figure out how to kind of get this repeatable, sustainable income stream. You know, I need to, I need to make the leap from where I am to being a management company, to being a real management company. And, you know, so I have a platform and, you know, I don't have enough hotels to do that yet. And it's going to require some investment, some capital. So I need to like partner with somebody or I need to, you know, hook up with a real estate, like a hotel developer who owns a few hotels or I need to find a way to, to do this. And, um, he was the one who suggested to me to talk to Richard Millard, who was then the CEO of what was called Tecton Hospitality. And Tecton Hospitality had been around for 20 years. It had come out, it had originally been a receiver um, and had morphed into a hotel management company. And then they created this boutique brand called Desires Hotels. And uh, Raul Leal was running the day-to-day. But but Raul had just left to go and work for Virgin. And Richard was looking for a replacement uh, for Raul. So I meet with Richard and I'm like, I want 30% of Tecton. We're going to rebrand it as Trust Hospitality. I'm going to throw my hotels in. You're going to throw your hotels in. And we're going to go focus on four and five star boutique hotels and build a management company. And how was that taken? Is he like, who are you? <laughs> Tell me this. Or you guys uh, didn't know each other? Yeah, it didn't happen on the first meeting. Uh, <laughs> okay. It didn't happen on the first meeting. It took a couple, it right. took a couple of meetings. And, you know, Richard's old school, so, like, he needed to call lots of people who knew, you know, who, you know, like, like mutual friends and, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, who is this guy and, you know, is he trustworthy and is he this and is he that? But we ended up making the deal. 
I think I think I had to earn in <laughs> to 30% over two years or something like that. I think I came in at 10%. I earned my way into 30%. But you guys took off. That's really when you kind of started coming more on my radar because yeah. we hadn't really met until we met at a wedding of uh, right. a f- former podcast guest, Chef Gordon Mabry. We had met yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. and that's yeah. when you know, our kind of friendship started, but I just started watching you. And that's when I really got motivated. You started to take off and take on all these hotels. Yeah. Following that, right. Or is that just from yeah. my own perspective? Yeah. 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 We grew from about, we, we, when I, when I came into Tecton first, we, when we first rebranded as trust, I was around 2012, probably had about a dozen hotels. We grew that to a portfolio of about 50 hotels over five years. Mm-hmm. And, um, we really got to, it was inter, it was an interesting evolution. It was very hard. Um, but I think what we did was we stayed very focused on four and five star boutique independent hotels. And we were the only ones because I spoke Spanish, I was able to go and, uh, drum up business in Central America, Latin America, and Mexico, um, and the Caribbean. And we really became the go-to guys in the Caribbean and Latin America, uh, for independent boutique hotels. Um, and only laterally did some competition emerge in those markets, but we kind of had it. And, you know, but for, you know, again, in hindsight, in hindsight, um, we should have found a capital partner way back then because we did all of that growth with like nothing, Mm -hmm. like nothing. We were literally, you know, operating paycheck to paycheck and we were able to land big institutional clients like, you know, Carlisle and, you know, we were running, we ran a portfolio of like 800 rooms for them in the Keys at one point. Um, we had family offices, uh, that we were working for, you know, multi-billion dollar family offices that we were, we really, we, we were like knocking it out of the park and we did it with nothing. It was pretty amazing. And so what, what was the pitch? You would go down to South America, the Caribbean. What, what's the pitch like? Um, so in many cases we were, they hadn't even figured out what they wanted to do. So in a lot, a lot of times you were going down and they were showing you like a, a like a piece of land in a neighborhood and they were like, what do you think I can do with this? So like we developed like a little business plan for them. We say, look, you know, in this market, based on your competitive set, based on what people are getting, you know, in terms of rate and ADR, based on construction costs, um, you know, if you can build something here for a hundred thousand a key, you know, you can get, you can get your IRR. Basically what we were trying to show them was like getting an IRR of like 20% plus. Nice. And we would show them how they could do that faster as an independent than as a branded hotel. And, you know, what we were particularly good at was creating those unique independent brands that gave these hotels a sustainable competitive advantage in those marketplaces for a long, long time. And like I look back on our portfolio of hotels and they are still market leaders. And I'm talking about like I have a friend right now who's having his honeymoon in, in Cartagena at Casa San Augustine, which is a hotel 10 years ago, which was the number one hotel on TripAdvisor in the world and has been the number one hotel on TripAdvisor in Colombia for the last decade. Um, you know, the, the Press Hotel in Portland, Maine, again, you know, the Iron Horse Hotel in Milwaukee. Like these are all like pretty iconic hotels. And um have standed the test of time, have had that unique, you know, uh, competitive advantage for, you know, in some cases like a decade. So really proud of the work that we did there. Um, but like in hindsight, I wish we had, so our pitch was 
you know, it could be everything from we're going to help you develop and, and do this. In, in certain cases, it was like take over our hotel and help us manage it. And we would have to demonstrate how we could do a better job. But mm -hmm. we mostly did new developments and redevelopments. Yeah, so, so one stop shop. You come to us, we'll tell you what to do. We'll fix it for you. We'll run it for you. You don't have exactly. to worry about anything. Exactly. So like, you know, Carlisle came to us like with the Hampton Inn in Isla Morada, the one that everybody in, in Florida or at least Miami knows is the one that had the Outback Steakhouse. Yeah. And we, yeah. we, turned, we turned them to, into a Mara Kay. Uh, I, would, I, would, I went there a couple of times when you guys ran it. And it was awesome. Yeah. So so like that was kind of our program was take these, you know, um, you know, help developers look at these opportunities that they have. And like in some cases, a brand made sense. You know, and we did a lot of we 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 became a preferred operator for for a um, autograph uh, Marriott's autograph collection and Hilton Curio, Hilton Hilton's Curio collection. But then we did like wild stuff. Like we went out to uh, the northern coast of Honduras and we built a massive resort out there with a Gary Player golf course. And anyway, so we did a lot, like we we kind of were a bit of a one stop shop, but we were focused on four and five star uh, hotels. You know, four or five star hotels, mostly in the independent space. So you're building it, you're growing. It sounds like everything's going great. You're there almost six years. When yeah. does your life change? Like a, a big right turn. We're just like bootstrapping our way through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, what we should have done was found a capital partner. And we should have been investing in some of those hotels uh, alongside somebody. And we needed, we, we could have scaled way faster, um, you know, and uh, ultimately, we got to a point where we were just finding it very difficult to sustain the growth. Uh, we were finding it really difficult to sustain the growth because there was like one of me. And we just, because so many of our hotels were either in development stages, they weren't generating fees yet. So you're getting mm -hmm. some opening fees, you're getting some consulting fees. But they, you weren't really, you know, generating your your management fees and your incentives. You were like of our portfolio of forty or fifty hotels. There's probably only about fifteen of them that were generating management fees, and then the balance of them were still kind of in in development. So you're waiting for those to open before they started generating fees, and you're trying to hold on to them because right. what happens is your developers and owners get smarter over time. They're like, hmm, do I really like? After these guys do all of this for me, do I really need them? And, you know, in the third-party management business, your contracts are pretty much worthless. Like, you are just not going to sue somebody, you know, for, you know, even if you sign a five-year deal or a seven-year deal or a 10-year deal, you know, un like, you have better luck with the institutional uh, investors. They're, they're a little bit more loyal. Um, are, 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 I guess they're a little bit more formal meaning they're, they'll be more inclined to stick to their agreement and they'll be less inclined to try and do it themselves. But when you're starting to deal with like independently wealthy people, family offices, things like that, they're like, uh, let's just like double the GM salary, give this, give the head of sales another hundred grand. And like, we don't need these guys anymore. And uh, that's, that started to happen to us. So we we're like, you know, you're trying to hold on to contracts. You're trying to get hotels open. You're trying to hold, you know, you're trying to make sure you're still paying attention to the guys that are that are generating the fees, so so that so that you don't lose them. And uh, we really needed more regional coverage, and and like you can't just send anybody um, to be your representative from the management company because what what happens over time if you're not careful is it becomes an us and them thing. 
where like, okay, you know, the owner is seeing the GM every day and meeting with the team all the time because they live in the market. Like right. that's the worst possible scenario. And then like you're flying in from Miami, whatever. Yeah. And you start to become the outsider mm -hmm. and, and it starts to become us and them. And like, and even the, and, and if you don't have a GM who's on board, you know, that you haven't brought in, that isn't loyal to you, they start to become loyal to the owner and they'll be like, we don't need these guys, which is all understandable. That's just like, you know, that's just kind of the way it goes. So it's a tough business. It's a tough business to, to hold on to. So you, you, you expect a certain amount of churn and uh, unless you have ownership. And that's what I realized. I'm like, we are always going to have this churn. Like we need capital so we can deploy more resources to, to add more value to these hotels and to these owners. Um, and we also need to figure out how to invest alongside these guys so that these contracts are actually worth something. Right. So we own the place and you can build off those brands that you're building. Or you build equity or, yeah. or, or at least at least if I'm putting you know a sliver of equity into these deals. And I like, you know, I wish I had equity in half of the hotels that we had opened over the last decade. I'd probably not be sitting here. <laughs> you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be on your own island. I'd still be talking to you, but you know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be sitting in this office. Yeah. So, so when does that all change for you? So you, it's that, it sounds stressful. You know, most jobs it, are stressful, but this is a tough one because you really, like you said, it's just on how much someone is going to give you their word and, and hold the deal together. Yeah. So you spend six years building this brand and building this management company and building, you know, all of these different hotels. In a year, uh, we were opening about 10 hotels a year at plus restaurants, plus spas, plus golf courses, plus, you know, other shit, nightclubs. Mm -hmm. Uh, beach clubs. Um, so like it was hard. It was hard. It was hard work. Um, but what I'll tell you, like, again, I, I talked a minute ago, ago about like, you know, designing your life and then like let go of the tiller. Um, I dreamed about a job like that when I was like in my teens. I dreamed about this job where I was flying around building hotels and, you know, going to different countries and the Caribbean and whatever else. Like that was my dream job. And as hard as it was, as difficult as it was to hold on, that was my dream job. That was the thing that I had always wanted to do. And I got to do it for six years. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the six years, you know, I think I had this realization, we have, we have to have a capital partner. And ultimately Richard and I just didn't see eye to eye on how that was gonna happen. And uh, we had somebody who was gonna acquire us at a great valuation and then they dropped out of the last minute and, you know, we kind of had lots of kind of emotional ups and downs towards the end. And I got, I just got to the point where like, I did not see a clear path forward for the company unless we found a capital partner. And that was it. And so, have it. that was the first, that was the first time my phone ring from rang from a recruiter in like 10 years. And I got a phone call from a recruiter asking me if I want to go an interview for Brightline as uh, the, as their EVP of operations. So for the listener who doesn't know Brightline, what, give them the 30 second download on what is Brightline. Yeah. yeah. So Brightline is uh, the first privately funded intercity high speed passenger train and um, in the United States in over 100 years. The last guy to do it was like Henry Flagler in you know the 1890s. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no private uh, rail operator or private rail developer in the US. So what we're doing is we're building a train between Miami and Orlando, which will run hourly service. Uh, which will open sometime next year 
We're already running it between Miami and West Palm Beach. We have been for a couple of years. We took a break for COVID, but we reopened last November. Uh, we're currently carrying, you know, about 100,000, 150,000 people a month um, on what, what I think a lot of people consider to be uh, more of an experience-focused train. Um, so, you know, this is a, these are train stations that feel more like hotel lobbies. You can guess why. Mm-hmm. These are trains that have, you know, leather seats and great Wi-Fi and outlets that you don't have to crawl under your seat to plug into. And, you know, I think all of the things that um, I think we took all, all of the things that we learned from developing experiences in, in hotels and restaurants to, to, you know, to transportation. So we how does that come? So you get the recruiter calls you and say, yeah. hey, you want to join a train company? You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was exactly, uh, it was, it was exactly, it was exactly that. It was like, why are they calling me? I remember talking to my wife. I'm like, uh, babe, what do you what do you think about this thing? She's like, I think you should go talk to them. So and it was so weird because honestly, like recruiters had stopped calling me because, like I said, like I was already I was, this was my dream job. I was doing my I was hey, doing what I wanted to do. So when they called me, I'm like, okay, I guess I'll go interview. They're like, okay, send your resume. I'm like, my resume. Like, I haven't prepared a resume in over a decade. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I wrote up my resume. I went and I interviewed, and I kind of I I I. I attended the interview and like what I expected to be the subsequent possible job offer uh, to be something I could use as leverage to negotiate with my partners to actually take a deal that I thought <laughs> that we should take. And, uh, you know, I, I go to the interview and I meet with this guy called Mike Reininger, who is um, Mike's the CEO of Brightline Holdings. And Mike has done like big things in his life. He has built, you know, this is a guy who has envisioned and delivered multi-billion dollar projects like Disney Cruise Lines, like the like Disney's private island. Uh, he worked for the St. Joe Company. Uh, he recently spent three years in Saudi Arabia working for Kidia, building a 160,000 acre city, sports and entertainment city. Uh, he does big things. Uh, but he's really a development guy. And I interview with him. He's like, I need an operations guy. I need, like, I need a guy who's going to make sure the coffee's hot and the music's, you know, great and the lobby smells nice and people are friendly and like that's like not my department i need somebody who can do those things so um when i when i started to look at what he was going to deliver in terms of a product i'm like this is this is like a game changer for transportation mm-hmm. in and, and i and, and like may i be so bold as to say like not just in the u.s like like globally like no one's ever done anything like this before and certainly nobody's done it in the united states um, so it's, it's funded by Fortress Investment Group, who are big infrastructure investors. They've got about $50 billion in, in, in assets under management. A lot of it's like ports and terminals and energy companies and whatever else, and, and freight railroads. Um, but they own the freight railroad here in Florida, and they basically you know, saw the opportunity to develop high-speed rail between Miami and Orlando, which is something that's been talked about by the government for a couple of decades. Um, and because they already own the infrastructure, they're like, we're going to do it. So six years and you know, $5 billion later, we're about to deliver Miami to Orlando. And now we're working on a, another a second project between uh, LA and Vegas, which would be another, you know, 250-ish mile corridor where we'll, where we'll actually be able to run trains at 200 miles an hour. Florida, we can only run, our, our top speed is 125 miles an hour. You can run 80 miles an hour through South Florida because it's so dense. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about the, 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 the C Railroad 
state grew up around this railroad, so it's very dense by definition. Right. Uh, so we can't go, we can't go at those higher speeds. It's still a three-hour travel time between Miami and Orlando is pretty good. Um, you know, and that's like you don't need to make any restaurant or potty breaks uh, on the way, and you're not subject to weather or traffic, and it's more productive, and you don't you know show up in Orlando wanting to kick the dog. Um, <laughs> so we think it's pretty great. Um, and people are using it now more and more frequently. We're seeing our numbers right now are about 40% above pre-pandemic. Uh, but it's been a very fun and interesting journey. And what I would say is it's nothing like what I was doing. It's so different. I mean, there are aspects of what I'm doing now, which I have drawn from my hospitality experience, mm-hmm. but there are aspects of what I do here that I have never done before. So in terms of like expanding my you know, intellectual capacity and challenging me in ways that I've never been challenged before. This has been a phenomenal, phenomenal experience in that regard. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's amazing to see, you know, for the listeners, you know, Patrick's very down to earth here and you see him on TV. I see you on TV a lot. I see in the newspapers a lot because it is such an important company to this market. And you, I think you'll start seeing it pop all over uh, as soon as it opens to Orlando because it's like someone like me, two kids, I don't want to drive from Miami to Orlando. So I'm excited to, to hop on that train and, and experience it once it's up and running. But Patrick, we've taken a lot of your time today, you know, because you have such an interesting story. Um, but looking back at Patrick the Nixer, okay, you've been all around the world. You've seen so many things. You've learned so many different languages. You've been in different industries. But if you were going back to young Patrick the Nixer, if he was starting out today, what advice would you give him? Know your know thyself. Uh, you know, I think I'm a I'm a. I think that there are so many tools now. Like you know, coming up today versus coming up when when I came up. You know, I'm like 46 and I'm like old relative. Like I feel like when I'm giving advice to people about their careers and I'm talking to people who are like in their late teens and their early 20s. Um, the world is very different, and I think that there are some tools available today that weren't available when we were coming up. Like. Um, uh, let me, I, I won't put you in the same category as me, but, uh, um, I just, I just turned 40, so I'm almost there. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think self-awareness is such a valuable thing and understanding who you are and what you value uh, is such a valuable way to frame how to design your life and how to think about where you want to go. And I would encourage anybody who hasn't done any of these like personality tests or, or disc assessments or, you know, like. Jordan Peterson has this personality test and Ray Dalio has one and there's lots of free ones and cheap ones or whatever, but like get to understand who you are. And like, I, I wish I had done some of those things. Look, things have worked out for me. I think I learned things. I think it was the harder, the harder way, if you will. I think you have opportunity to, to learn a lot about yourself like pretty easily today compared to how you could do that, that, that in the past and more accurately. And then you start to, you start to design, you know, start to design what that life is going to be for you. What, you know, your career, your personal stuff, uh, how you balance all of those things, what you want, uh, out of life, you know, what your objectives are out of life. And, uh, which I think is good. And I think it's good to have a clear point of view about where you want to go, but then also letting go of the tiller a little bit and allowing, being open to experiences, um, being open to trying new things. Even as a kid, you know, my dad used to get really frustrated with me because, you know, I would try a sport and give up a sport and try a sport and give up a sport. And then I do something for a year or two and then I do something else. And he's like, you never stick to anything. But like, 
I feel like, uh, and, and like coming up as a teenager and, and, and all of this travel, all these things happened because I never said no to anything. Mm-hmm. I said yes to everything. I said yes to like more things than I probably should have. And so some of that was like, didn't turn out so great, but most of that turned out to be really helpful to me. So, you know, I don't know that I would tell younger Patrick Otter to do anything that much different, but if I can offer, you know, and if there's anybody, you know, who, who, who listens to this, who's trying to think through how to approach things, that, that would be, that would, that would be the only guidance that I would offer. I think that's a great advice and a great place to end. And I can tell the listeners it's good advice if Patrick Goddard's telling you because he's done fantastic in his life and his career. Uh, and I'm really proud of you, man, just to see you and where you are now these days. It's uh, it's amazing to see. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Well, Steve, I can't, as I told you before we started recording, I couldn't be prouder of where you have landed. And I think you are just getting started. I think that you, uh, watching your progression over the last few years and, um, how thoughtful you are about your approach, uh, how thoughtful you are about how you communicate, uh, how thoughtful you've been about the different ventures that you are pursuing um, is going to pay off in spades. And I can see the investment that you're making um, and the thought that you're putting into those investments, uh, you know, in terms of time and intellect. Um, so I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I'm glad. I hope this helps in some way. Um, I, I, I'm excited to continue to watch you on your journey. Um, I wish you the best of luck and, uh, you know, however I can support you moving forward. Don't hesitate to let me know. I appreciate that, my friend. That means a lot. I have to buy you a pint and we can share some other stories soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome. This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.